Good morning, how are you? Uh, before I share the word, we're going to have a testimony because we tried to do testimony on the second Sunday of the month, but it didn't work out. So I think this is the third. Is this the third Sunday? Don't you have your phone and calendar? There? So we're going to have the Kumrals come up and share their testimony with us this morning. Let's welcome Mike and Marla. Do you want to? No? How are you going to do a phone, an iPad? This is Mike Kumrel. That's my testimony. A phone and an iPad. Uh, I want to make sure I how you gonna, minutes, right? How you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Sense of humor. No, I love it. Actually, uh, we'll keep it down. I wrote it down, so um, <laughs> I'm going to make sure that uh, <clears throat> I don't go too far. So, um, God created a perfect, sinless world, free from the tyranny of death. Adam and Eve sinned. Death accompanied that sin, and I was destined for death. God sent Jesus, his son, to die in my place. That's my testimony. <laughs> Amen. Marla's turn. Yep. Put another way, <clears throat> my life could be illustrated like this. I was driving down the interstate in the center lane, uh, driving roughly 60 miles an hour. Another vehicle also driving down the interstate at the same speed and in the same lane as me. He was just ahead of me. However... It was fast approaching because he was going the wrong way. Without Christ, my destiny is to be forever and eternally destroyed by that other car going at a combined speed of 120 miles an hour. That's my destiny as a sinner. But Christ took my place. Um, There are a few moments in my life that have uh, um, at uh, at each place forever changed me. So moments along with the word of God that have given me eternal perspective. One moment that uh, has forever changed me uh, really is a season. And many of you should be able to relate. Children. There are two aspects of raising children. Teaching them the things of God. uh, Which, and this is the second thing, if I am honest, causes me to examine everything that I am or am not doing. Mm. As I could possibly be the only Christ to them. Um, not just my children, but by extension, my wife, my family, uh, extended family, co-workers, and friends. So, uh, for the last few years, I have incessantly been thinking and meditating on why I was created. Um, it's, of course, to glorify God. I was not primarily created to love, though I am commanded to. I was not primarily created to serve, though I am called to. I was created to glorify God. Uh, If what I am doing right now is not glorifying God, then why am I investing time and energy to do it? All of my life I have heard, um, having grown up in church uh, in a a Christian home, all of my life I've heard and have read verses like Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Um, I've heard Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How do I do this? What does it look like? These are questions that I have asked myself on a nearly daily basis for years upon years now. With with, With the help and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I keep my eyes focused on God and eternity. Two more moments that came uh, before uh, before I entered into high school. And then um, I, I have relatively ex- little experience with death, obviously. I'm here. <clears throat> but seriously, before I, before I got into high school, um, I only recall encountering death twice. Once when my great-grandmother passed away, and the other time when my guinea pig died. As you can imagine, I cried. Cried really hard. Um, But with the understanding and having faith that my great-grandma was in heaven with God, I don't recall crying hard at all. Um, Sure, I was upset and sad, but in reality, it was only because I knew that whoever and wherever they may be, my eventual wife and kids would not be able to enjoy, uh, enjoy knowing her. I was heartbroken over that. 
But even that seemed okay to me in light of eternity. But with my guinea pig, it was over. <laughs> and I knew it. <laughs> the last moment that has changed my life, and I shared this recently, is when Marla and I saw the, late, the latest result of Riley's hearing test. Uh, what a miracle that is. Amen. I don't want to take the time now to uh, detail it today, but two years ago, uh, we had Riley's hearing tested, and already by the time she was seven, her hearing was bad enough that the audi- audi- audiologist was ready to have us consider getting hearing aids for her. And then some months later, um, incidentally, my grandma was asking uh, why I had never told her that Riley had hearing loss. I told her that I chose not to dwell on the present or dwell on this flesh and blood. Rather, I chose choose again, not with the Holy Spirit. Um, let me start that one. <clears throat> Rather, I choose, and again, not without the Holy Spirit, to put my faith in God and rest in that. And that regardless of my or my loved one's physical condition, God is sovereign. And he is in complete and utter control. Even in that moment, and even though I did not know that her hearing would, would be all but completely restored just two years later, I knew that at the end of the day, someday, she will stand before God completely whole. And even if it, she lived to be 120 years old, compared to eternity, that's nothing. You see, going back to what Christ did for me, he took my place where death had rightfully taken, uh, taken its place. I was destined for a head-on collision with no possibility for escape. But at the right time, Jesus stepped in, took the driver's seat, and I evaded and avoided death. I am no longer susceptible, subject, vulnerable, or predisposed to an eternal death. I'm not, asking, I'm not talking about my skin cells. I'm talking about what we see, in, I'm, or I'm not talking about what we see in the news, though all of this and, uh, will eventually be included. I am talking about not being subject to an eternal death, rather being eternally unaffected by death. That's why. Uh, so, so Christ defeated death. Amen? We are no longer slaves to sin that death accompanies. That's why when I sing Christ is risen, I think we sang it last week, I get so excited. The bridge is, oh death, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? Church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come, stand in the light. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. And if I keep my eyes on Jesus, if I keep my eyes with the help of the Holy Spirit on the eternal kingdom of God, then everything else can fall into place. And now I read with conviction Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is my testimony. And this is my beautiful wife, Marla. Okay, I didn't write mine down like him, so hopefully I can remember everything and not be too nervous. So my story begins a while ago. Um, I'm going to go way back to when I was in my mother's womb. Way back. So um, Psalm 139 says, um, You made all the delicate and inner parts of my body, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. 
You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out. <laughs> ah! Okay. Get it together, Marla. What? I love you. Um, how precious are your thoughts about me, oh God? They cannot even be numbered. Um, so most of you guys know, and maybe some of you guys don't, that... Um, I was adopted, and um, yes, you did. We've had this conversation. <laughs> We've had this conversation. Okay, so see, thank you, Diane. So I, I was adopted. Um, my birth mom was sixteen, and praise God, she chose life. And um, my story doesn't stop there. Um, I was adopted into a family who. Um, are Christians. I have three older brothers, and so you can imagine, as the baby of the family, how spoiled I am, or or was. Um, and I am so thankful that you know God could have put me anywhere. He could have put me in any family, but He put me in a family of people who love God, and they took me to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Sunday night. I grew up going to church. Every time the doors were open, we were there. And um, so my first encouragement, I have three encouragements in my little testimony today. My first encouragement is, if you're thinking about adopting or fostering, think about the fact that you might be the reason that that kid comes to know Christ. You might be the only opportunity they have to know the Lord. And I am so, so thankful that my parents brought me to church. They weren't perfect. You know, none of us are. But one thing they did right was they brought me to church. I hadn't planned on crying. Why am I crying? (laughs) Yes! Thank you, Diane Vaughn. Diane's rubbing off on me. That's what it is. (laughs) I've been here long enough now. So if you're thinking about adopting, just keep bringing about that and understand that that could be that child's opportunity to know the Lord. Um, so, like I said, I grew up in church. We were there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every Friday night for prayer. And I can remember when I was about five years old, coming up to the altar with my mom and asking Jesus to be my Savior. And, um, and that was really cool. And I didn't quite understand what all that meant. But I'm sure a lot of you here can relate. I know a lot of you guys are have grown up in church and are homeschooled and um, but it doesn't stop there. Just because you say a prayer doesn't mean that that's all there is to being a Christian. Being a Christian is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so um, probably when I was in high school was when I really felt like that relationship started to grow. And I can remember praying and asking God, God, just re- reveal yourself to me. Show me that you're real. Show me that you are here. And I remember sitting on the couch reading my Bible, and I don't remember exactly where it was, but I know it was in Thessalonians, and I tried to look it up, but I couldn't remember. But I remember just sitting there reading my Bible, and all of a sudden, God's Word just, like, came alive. And it was like I was reading it for the first time, and it was like God was actually talking to me. Well, He was actually talking to me. And I just remember it just being, like, a huge turning point in my life where I thought, wow, God is actually talking to me. Me. Not just... He's not just spewing out random words, but he's talking to me as a personal thing. And I just remember um, from that moment on just really feeling like, okay, now I really am in a relationship with Christ. I can talk to him. He can talk to me. And um, so my second encouragement is (laughs) for the youth and the young people, um, just because you came up here and said a prayer with your parents when you were 5 or 7 or 12, It doesn't stop there. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's nothing that your parents can contrive for you. It is something that you have to want and that you have to own. And um, one of my favorite verses from that time in my life was Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. 
If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. So, seek the Lord and ask him to reveal himself to you, and he will. And then um, the next part of my story is when we moved here to St. Louis. We've been here almost 10 years now. And Mike grew up here, but I didn't. I'm kind of from all over the place. Um, we came here to St. Louis, and we started coming to Liberty. Mike's brother and his wife came here, and we just felt like it was kind of a natural thing, and we already knew some people here. So we started coming to Liberty, and quite honestly, I thought everybody here was crazy. <laughs> Everybody, you know, was all in this whole submit to your husband thing and homeschooling. And the only experience I had with homeschooling was the stereotypical homeschoolers are weird and unsocialized. And so um, it took me a good while to kind of like let my guard down and say, okay, God, what do you want to teach me? And um, that started happening actually about eight years ago when we started Life Groups. We started life groups, and I remember we met in Mike and Andrea Bond's house, their little ranch, and we all shoved in there with all of our little babies and kids. And it was loud, and it was it took us three years to go through First John. But <laughs> I don't think I'm exaggerating, really. Um, but at that time in my life was when I really, I really wanted and needed to be discipled, and I really also wanted to be connected because I didn't feel like I was connected at church and I really wanted some friends and life group turned out to be an awesome way to do that I really felt like at that time was when I really started to grow in my walk with the Lord again I started to understand what it meant to submit biblically to your husband I started to understand why people would want to homeschool their children I started to understand some of these things that I had never been taught growing up in church um And so that was really awesome. So my third encouragement to everybody is to get involved in a life group. If you're not in one, get in one somehow. Um, If you feel if you do feel disconnected, get in a life group. If you want to be discipled and grow in your walk with the Lord, get in a life group. If you need a friend, get in a life group. Um, It has been a place where we have made friendships. I think that are going to last forever. I mean, the Espenshides were there in that beginning life group. The Kesslerings were there. The Olenicheks, the Maloneys, and I, and the Carpenters. And I know that we are going to be lifelong friends with these people. And not just friends, but being able to just spur each other on and support each other as we walk through life together. And it has been just an amazing journey. And I can't wait to see what else God has for us here at Liberty. And we love you guys. Awesome. That was great. I timed myself. I, uh, I timed myself. Less than nine minutes. Yours was nine minutes? Less than. You didn't time your wife. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that was great. A lot of good, lot of good stuff there. Amen. Um, we're going to get into the Word. Uh, let's open our Bibles to John 4. I know you can all smell the chili. It's going to be hard uh, fighting the temptation, the distraction, but we'll do it. Um, John four, John four twenty four. We looked at a while ago as I began to talk on the topic of worship. Jesus here is talking to the woman at the well, a Samaritan, an outcast, and he says uh, to her in verse twenty two of John four. He says. Uh, but you worship what you do not know. We we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Of course, it was through the Jews that the Messiah was to come. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now let's turn to Philippians 3. I want to look at a few more verses before we dig in. Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. 
For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Not literal dogs, it's figurative language. Beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. This was a derogatory term that Paul used for the Jews who glorified circumcision. He called them the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God. My version says who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now this phrase here, who worship God in the Spirit, can be translated who worship God by the Spirit. Or it can be translated maybe in your version, who worship by the Spirit of God. Um, The point being here is that true worship... Or in order for worship to be true, it must be prompted and guided by the Holy Spirit. We, we worship in spirit, not just in the sense of with our heart, that's true, or with our soul. But we worship in the Holy Spirit or by the aid and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, we see the same thing here. And this is the text I want to I want to sit on, but we won't be able to dig into it a whole lot today. We'll do more next week. In Ephesians 5, in verse 18, Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine, or beer, or vodka, or rum. What's your favorite? Or tequila. Or do not be drunk with any of these things doesn't say you can't drink any of these things. It says do not be drunk with any of these things. Right? You hearing me? Okay. Do not be high on marijuana. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. That's okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, and do not be... <laughs> I'm just glad it's illegal in Missouri. Then I don't have to answer any of your questions about it, okay? <laughs> and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but... In contrast to being filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So um, the Holy Spirit is required in order for us to worship God in an acceptable manner. Why that is so, I will explain to you later. Why that is necessary, and it is necessary, it's not optional, I will explain next week. This week, I want to continue what I began a couple weeks ago when we looked at the text in in Acts 19, and this is where Paul runs into some believers, believers, you gotta, you gotta watch me when I preach. Believers, quotation mark believers. And as he began to talk to them, he, he realized in the conversation they did not have the Holy Spirit. So were they believers? Well, kind of. They were quotation mark believers. What that means was, is they were intellectual believers. They had assented to the Messiahship of Jesus, but not having been taught any further than the preaching of John the Baptist, they did not even know that the Holy Spirit had come. They were unaware of what happened in Acts 2. And in Acts chapter 2, what happened is that God poured His Spirit out on the church... And the, the, the gifts of the Spirit were diffused throughout the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, some would argue that that was the moment when the body of Christ was created. And thus now people were joined to Christ by a vital union through the ministry and possession of the Holy Spirit. Because that precious Holy Spirit, that precious gift of God, is the Spirit of Jesus Christ that lives in our hearts. So in our previous sermon 
I asked the question, what makes Christianity different from other world religions? And what we learned is that it's not morals. Because if you go back and study the, the teaching of Jesus, you see very often Jesus says a lot of the things that the rabbi said. When you study Paul, you find out Paul Paul said many things that were being said by, by uh, Greek and Roman philosophers of his own day. And some... some uh, Critics use that as evidence. We'll see Christianity just like everything. It's not any, it's not different. What about the sacraments? Other religions have their sacraments. What makes Christianity different? It's that it offer people, it offers people a new heart. A new heart. I was raised in a Christian denomination. Heard nothing of the Holy Spirit other than he was part of the Trinity, knew nothing of, of the true gospel of grace, nothing of uh, re- receiving the Holy Spirit, nothing of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that Christianity was legalism. That's all it was. It was death. True Christianity... Is when God gives someone a new heart. And this new heart gives people a desire and a power to live a holy life. The reason so many people cringe at the word holiness is because they can't see that holiness is beautiful. And they can't see it because they don't have the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit fills you and and He shows you the nature of true holiness, you understand that holiness is beautiful. It's not sterile. It's not cramping. It's not frowning. I mean, I know that some that's some Christians' version of holiness. It's the long list of what we don't do because we're better than you, right? It's the lemon sucking Christians, you know. With the pursed lips and the frowning brow. Looking down on everybody else, that, those kind. But you see, if we have morals without power, we have moralism. If we have sacraments without power, we have ritualism. If we have, if we have a creed without power, we have formalism. But the u- uniqueness and the beauty of true Christianity is that God himself, are you listening? Say yes. Yes. God himself deigns to dwell in our hearts. And it is the presence of God dwelling in the temple of the human soul, which enables us to know him, to love him, to serve him, and to worship him. The tragedy of the fall was not that man was expelled from the garden. The tragedy of the fall was that God was expelled from man's heart. Because where does God dwell on the earth? Well, you say, well, God dwells everywhere because he's ubiquitous. Don't you love that word? I love that word. That's really a Latin word. It just means he's everywhere, right? We say omnipresent. God's everywhere, so where does he dwell? Well, he dwells everywhere. But God takes up his abode in the human heart. Because man was created, and each heart was created to be a temple for the Holy Spirit, in which God would dwell in that heart. And so when man sinned, he expelled God from his heart, and so God expelled him from the garden. But of course, the story of redemption is that uh, is that after the fall, God, through a long chain of events, planned and then brought to pass the glorious salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that He, through dying on the cross, being buried and rising from the dead, He dealt with every obstacle to the return of the Spirit to the human heart. Every obstacle was removed by Jesus Christ. So now God, in righteousness and holiness, 
could come and dwell again and take up his abode in the human heart. And so after Jesus was then ascended on on the throne, seated on the throne, it says that he then poured out his Holy Spirit on those who believed. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. It was God once again taking his rightful place in man's heart. The place of supremacy. God setting up his throne in his temple in the heart of the believer. So, it is the in addition to the finished work of Jesus, which of course makes Christianity different, we must understand that the true Christianity doesn't end with the cross. As, as Marla said so beautifully, you know, you can walk the aisle, you can pray the sinner's prayer and this sort of thing. That's not the end, it's the beginning. So when I finished that previous sermon, I, I, I ended with this question. The question was, do you have the Holy Spirit? And the way you do not want to answer that question is by saying something like, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Um, or I walked the aisle when I was a child. I remember this conversation I had with this guy. This is many years ago. Um, BC, before cassettes. Um, <laughs> I was, I worked on a Christian bookstore and, and this, this, I was doing youth work on the weekends and this guy had come to the meeting off and on and he walked into the bookstore one night and he's, he's all excited. Hey man, I got, I gotta tell you what happened to church. I got saved. And he talks about, I, and I went down, the, I walked down the aisle and I was crying and I was slobbering all over and I asked Jesus to save me and I got saved. Again. I said, what do you mean again? Oh, oh, well, you know, it's probably the fifth time, but, you know. And he told me, basically, you know, he'd gone through this thing, this emotional thing, walking the aisle and, you know, blubbering for Jesus and this whole thing. This is the fifth time. Okay, so, well, did it take this time? Who knows? All right. But because he walked the aisle and he said the sinner's prayer, and not only did he do it, when he did it, he cried when he did it. It must have been real. The problem was he cried the other four times. And it wasn't real those times. So, we, we, you know, it's not the sinner's prayer that saves you. It's not walking the aisle that, that saves you. It's not having an emotional experience that saves you. It's not I was baptized... The very when I when I did youth work years ago, the very first person I talked to at the youth meeting, I said, "Are you a Christian?" And she said, "I was baptized as a child." Now you realize that answer has nothing to do with the question. If you understand true Christianity, that has nothing to do with the question. But in her mind, the one equal the other. Are you a Christian? I was baptized, meaning yes. Because I was baptized. Or yes, the evidence is I was baptized. Because I didn't ask, are you baptized? I said, are you a Christian? Because you can be baptized and not be a Christian, right? Right? I was baptized as an infant. And I was a pagan. A hard-living pagan. You know what I mean by hard-living? Fully immersed in the world. The drugs, the alcohol, the the whole scene. I mean, bad stuff. Bad things I did. Before I knew Jesus. But I had been baptized. I wasn't a Christian. You don't want to answer the question by saying, I, I was received into church membership. Some people think that because they're a member of what's called the visible church, that they must be a member of the invisible church. Not so. Um, I read a story a while back of this this man who... Had uh, Presbyterian been, been raised in the church, was a church goer. Then uh, he eventually became an elder. Was a pillar of his church, a pillar of his church. And at a church service, that a guest speaker come in, and the guest speaker invited people to receive Christ. 
A lot of a lot of Presbyterian churches don't invite people to receive Christ. They just assume if they're chosen, eventually they'll just get saved, right? That's why we call them the frozen chosen. Just kidding. Just kidding. I got many wonderful Presbyterian friends. Um, this this man who had been a pillar of the church had been elder for many years. Uh, when he was eighty years old, realized he wasn't saved. Eighty years old, and he, th- this guest speaker, contrary to the custom of the church, invited people to come down to the front to receive Christ. And he walked all the way down. Eighty years old, had been an elder in the church for many, many years. I mean, can you imagine the courage that took? Do you dig what I'm saying? That man must have been under such conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because you know what's going through his head. I can't walk, I can't do that. I've been an elder, oh my God. You can have all the outward appearances. You can be baptized. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can go to church. You can sing the songs. You can lead the worship. You can preach the sermons. But it doesn't mean you have the Holy Spirit. We have churches filled, filled with unregenerate people. That's why in the history of the church, what you see is these phenomenon called revivals. Because what happens during revivals, the first thing that happens is that the church, meaning the Christians, end up getting saved. I probably led more Christians to Christ than professed pagans over the years. Years ago, I used to go to different churches and speak to their youth groups. And these are kids that, if you walked in and said, are you a Christian? They would have said, yeah. And it's amazing. Hundreds and hundreds of them came to Christ. But I spoke at Westminster High School years ago at a big student rally. Twenty-five kids came forward to receive Christ. And if you'd asked them before the event, were you a Christian? They probably would have said, yeah. I was baptized. I go to church. My parents are Christians. But they weren't saved. And hence they had not the Holy Spirit. So when we when we talk about and now, now by the way, you're thinking, well, you know, what does this have to do with Ephesians 5? Well, we can't talk about the, the, the Holy Spirit's role in worship if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't work. So, um, so really this is preparatory to what I really want to talk about. So, what we have to ask ourselves, what we each need to ask ourselves when we think about, when we, when we answer the question, do, do I have the Holy Spirit, is what are the biblical evidences that the Holy Spirit dwells in a person? Because that's the important question, not what is the cultural expectation, what is the evangelical expectation, but what is the biblical standard, if you will. What does the Bible say? You will see if the Holy Spirit dwells in somebody. That's the question. And that's what I want to talk about today. And then next week we'll talk about the Holy Spirit's role in worship and why it's so important in worship that, as it says here in Ephesians 5, that we need to be filled with the Spirit in our worship of God. Now, let me say this before I go on. You might be thinking, Pastor, this is good, but I know I have the Holy Spirit, so you're wasting my time. Well, okay, maybe you do. That's that's something you're going to have to determine before the Lord, right? I'm not your judge. And you should be thankful of that. 
But for you that are really, 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 really sure, um, maybe as we look at these evidences, you might ask yourself, how much of this evidence is really evident in my life? Because as you look at the word, here's what you find is that the evidence for the possession of the Spirit is really the same evidence for the fullness of the Spirit. But the difference is one of degree. Do you understand what I'm saying? One of degree. First evidence is intimacy with God the Father. Romans 8. We're going to jump around now, so grab your Bible or phone or whatever you're using and get ready to move. Romans 8. Romans 8, uh, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If if indeed, if, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You don't get saved apart from the Holy Ghost. If you get saved, you have the Holy Ghost, and if you have the Holy Ghost, you're saved. They go together. Always. Then he says this. He goes on and he says, um, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Those who are truly regenerated by the Spirit of God know they are because the Spirit tells them they are. And the evidence of that is that they cry out to God, Abba, Father. That is to say, they recognize God as their Father, and they relate to God now, not as a judge whom they fear, but as a Father whom they love. And this term, Abba, it, does, it doesn't, some people say, well, it really means Daddy. It doesn't mean Daddy. A lot, of, a lot of research has been done on this recently because someone threw that idea out there, and everybody said it for years. It doesn't mean Daddy. It's not baby talk. But it is a term of endearment. Okay? And the idea here is that those who have the Spirit of God have a personal relationship with God the Father that is endearing. Right? Endearing. We see the same thing in Galatians 4. If you want to turn there quickly. In Galatians 4, Paul is contrasting the, 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 uh, Jews under the law to the Christians who are under grace. And he says they are like like children who are under schoolmasters. We are like the the adults who are liberated. And he says in chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of children or sons. And because you are children, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son or a child, then an heir of God through Christ. So it is a conscious possession of a love for God the Father and a relationship with Him, which is communicated to the heart through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, those that have the Holy Spirit recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uh, says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual things or gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away with these dumb idols, meaning idols that couldn't speak. They were dumb in other ways too, but he didn't mean that. However you were led. Therefore, I make you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, no one can recognize who Jesus really is in in his deity, that he's truly God and truly man. No one can recognize this apart from the Holy Spirit. 
We saw this with Matthew. When Matthew confessed to Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he says, you're blessed because the Father showed that to you. And, and fa- the Father shows us things, he teaches us things, how? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it is through the Spirit that we recognize who Christ is. There are, quote, Christian groups, you're watching, who do not believe Jesus Christ is truly God. When, when Paul says here that they call Jesus Lord, this concept of lordship didn't just mean like Lord, like you're the boss, you're the master, but Lord meaning you are worthy of worship, meaning you are God. It is to recognize the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and one of the marks of all of the cults that claim to be Christian, even the Mormons, is they refuse to recognize the proper deity of Jesus Christ. And that is the mark they do not have the Holy Spirit. Because it's only by the Holy Spirit that one recognizes the true person of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, uh, we won't get into this today, but those who have the Holy Spirit manifest the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So when you have the Spirit, the, the gifts of the Spirit then work in your life and through your life to minister to those around you. And that's what this whole chapter is about. It's about once we have the Holy Spirit, we're baptized into the body of Christ, where everybody in the body is given different gifts for ministry, etc., etc., etc. So, uh, you have, if you have the Holy Spirit, you, you will recognize that you have gifts from the Holy Spirit, and those gifts will be, will be used in ministry. Fourthly, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. I'm kind of hurrying because of time. Galatians 5. Paul says, um, in verse 16, he says, I said, then walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he talks about the flesh, which is bad news. Then 20, verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such, there is no law, meaning you don't need a law for these things. What you need is the Holy Spirit. No law can produce these. No, no amount, no, no number of commands is going to get you to be nice, kind, loving. You need the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit, these fruits will be evident in your life. Another evidence of the Holy Spirit is spiritual knowledge, spiritual discernment. John 14. This is where Jesus is really making the original promise to the church about the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the uh, parakletos, the advocate, the comforter. In our, many versions today, it's in English, it's been translated comforter. Un- that's an unfortunate translation, by the way, because the word has more of the sense of a strengthener. Okay? An aid who gives you power, not simply somebody that comforts you while you're walking around defeated all the time. That's not the idea. Okay? The old English word comfort was understood to meaning to empower, not just to console. So it got translated that way, but we often read it um, a little bit differently. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Or, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In your, in, in, in your soul, in that invisible sanctuary of the soul where God desires to dwell. Uh, then he goes on, he says, <clears throat> verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Now go to First John, which is way toward the back. First John chapter 2. In verse 18, 
John says, little, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Now, if that was true in John's day, how much more now, right? Many Antichrists, many deceivers, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So there was a defection in this church. People had left. And John says, well, they left because they, they, they weren't truly of us in the beginning. They were part of the visible group, but not the invisible group. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made apparent or manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. So this anointing is the Holy Spirit that we have, right? Who teaches us truth. And so those who have the Holy Spirit have a a spiritual understanding. I love the way Marla shared it earlier. She was reading her Bible, and all of a sudden, the light went on. Well, that was the Holy Spirit. Now, did she have the Holy Spirit before that? I don't know. But I know that she had the evidence of it after that. Because that's one of the evidences, is spiritual understanding and knowledge. Another evidence is uh, obedience to God's Word. Since we're in First John, look at chapter 3. Um, I want to read the whole book, but I better not. Um, verse 19 and uh, verse 20, 320. But if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, meaning God in him, or Christ in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his Holy Spirit. But he he ties the abiding with obeying. Okay, abiding with obeying. Now, too often when we hear, hear the word obey and obedience, um, we think of it as, um, we, we hear it in a legalistic way. We're not hearing it in a gospel way. Okay? Obedience is a beautiful thing. You know why? Because obedience brings life and health. Think of it this way. Imagine a dreary winter, like in Missouri. Days and days. I remember one winter, and I, it was like 20 days that the sun hadn't come out. This dreary and cold and dreary and cold. Then you get up in the morning and boom! The glorious sun. You just want to run outside, even though it's like super cold. You don't do it, but... The glorious sun, the light, the warmth, right? That's what holiness is. That's what obedience brings us. When we walk, really what First John's about is when we obey the Lord, we walk in the light. And guess what happens when you're in the light? You get all of the warmth and the growth and the blessing that comes from the light. And so the Holy Spirit works to make us holy. Get it? Holy Spirit? Holy? Get it? Not party spirit. Not fun spirit. Not church spirit. Not religious spirit. Holy Spirit. And holiness is a beautiful, life-affirming, life-giving act. 
Listen, the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Yeah. Say that again. The wages of sin is what? Yeah. Anybody here want to die? Anybody here want to walk in death? Okay, well, if the wages of sin is death, then guess what the wages of obedience is? Ah, yeah, you're getting it. Yeah, life. Life, blessing, prosperity, health, goodness, wisdom, love, joy, peace. Yeah. So when God gives us commands, they're not arbitrary. It's because he knows the way he created us. He created us in the womb. He designed us. And he knows that when we choose this path, this is the path of blessing in life. And when we choose this path, it's death and destruction. And I don't just mean ultimately, I mean in this life. I'm talking about soul prosperity, soul blessing. So the Spirit, what He does, He comes in our hearts and He, and he actually makes things like holiness look good. He makes obedience something we desire. Look at uh, Philippians real quick. And we're going to wrap up in a second. Philippians 2. Paul is exhorting us to be like Jesus, who laid aside his glory and his majesty and all his prerogatives. He could have, you know, Jesus could have ascended in a big chariot and angels and clouds and glory. Could have come down and said, I'm the boss man. I'm going to tell you all what to do. All worship me. Well, he didn't do that. He came as an infant. He came in poverty. He came um, unknown. He laid all of this aside. Took the form of a servant. Eventually died on a cross in our place. All of this is, is, uh, is his humiliation. Okay? So, he did this because he wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of us, right? So that's the exhortation of the chapter. Don't think about yourself first. Think about others. Well, how, how, how can we do this? How can we be like Christ? How can we not be self-centered? I mean, self is such a thing that you can't escape self by the self. You really can't. So we need a, a, a power from without coming in. So in chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Therefore, after giving this beautiful picture of Jesus' humility and exaltation, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this phrase, fear and trembling, doesn't mean work it out because you might not get, get into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's the, have you ever seen any of you guys ever lift weights? If you ever lift weights, raise your hand. Long time ago, right, Steve? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, did you ever lift any weights that were really heavy? Right? And if you lift something that's really heavy, guess what starts to happen? Yeah. That's what Paul's talking about. Use so much effort in your Christian life that it makes you shake. That's, that's the picture. Not fear and trembling. Oh, I might not make it to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the exertion of of holy anxiety and intensity that we should put in to obedience. And then look at this. Do this for it is verse thirteen. For it is God. Look for it is God who works in you. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God doesn't just come down and say, okay, now do this and do this and do this. And even though you're not going to like it, I'm just going to make you do it. He actually changes our heart. So we want to do the things that he wants us to do. We want to read the word. We want to pray. We want to witness. We want to serve. We want to love the body of Christ. We want to care for the poor. We want to do it because 
God is working from the inside to will, and then he gives us, the. after we get the desire to do it, we then are empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually do it. This is salvation. This is God saving us from ourselves. So we obey, not because, oh, well, I have to, I'm going to go to hell, but because we have a transformed heart. And that's why our obedience and our service, are they are marks or they are evidences that we have the Holy Spirit. They're evidence that our desire has been changed. And we're turning away from self toward God and others. Amen? Um, there are many more evidences I could give, but we're out of time for today. But I think you get the point, right? You, you see the point? So as we conclude today, um, let me let me wrap up by saying this. If there's little evidence in your life of the Spirit of God, then there are really two possibilities. First of all, you do not have the Holy Spirit. That does not mean you are not an intellectual believer. It does not mean you do not assent to the gospel. But it means that the Holy Spirit is not dwelling in your heart. And therefore, you need to come to Christ genuinely and surrender your life to Him. And ask Him to fill you with His Spirit. And it must be genuine and sincere. And as Marla read earlier, when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. You will find me. When you seek me with your whole heart. Now it is possible that that as you contemplate the things we've discussed today that you don't see a lot of evidence in your life but you are certain that you are a Christian you may be I don't know your heart and I'm not here to judge your heart this is a matter between you and the Lord but if you see little evidence but you are saved then what this means is that although you possess the Holy Spirit he does not possess you Which means you may have the Holy Spirit, but you are not being filled with the Spirit. And this is probably the most common phenomenon we have in our evangelical churches today. There's been some change in the believer's life. There's been some alteration that's apparent. And there seems to be some fruit of the Spirit. But it is not very great, and it is certainly not supernatural. Their lives on the whole could not be called spiritual but they probably be called carnal. And that is not because they do not possess the Spirit, but it's because the Spirit does not possess them, which means that they are not filled with the Spirit and they're not walking in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, my friend, is not a ticket to get into heaven. It is a power to live a transformed life. The Holy Spirit is the power of God by which you can walk in victory in your life You can have love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, kindness. These can be the real fruits of your character. You can live in victory over sin, over fear, over depression, over the many things that plague the human soul because the Holy Spirit of God has been given to you. Jesus said that he came to give us not merely life, but abundant life. And that abundant life has been given to those who have already received the Spirit. But some of us are like little children who are playing with the box on Christmas morning and we have not opened the gift. Because the Holy Spirit is the gift of God, which brings all the other gifts that we've talked about today. The wonderful transformation of character, the love, the joy, the peace, the the ability to live in obedience, not only the ability, the desire to walk in light and all the blessings that that brings. These are gifts that come with the one gift, the gift of the Spirit. It's not enough for us to be able to assert we are saved and even to point to a little bit of fruit in our lives. That is not the goal. The goal is that we would live Spirit-filled lives. 
And the spirit-filled life is a life which is inexplicable apart from God. Inexplicable. In other words, the true Christian life is a supernatural life. And it is offered to us as a gift from God. And we receive it by faith. By faith. If you want to live a supernatural life, God has provided the means for you. And if you have the Holy Spirit and you're sure of that, then you must yield to Him. You must ask Him to fill you. You must obey His promptings. And He can give you all the blessings that are promised in the Word of God. Amen?